You're listening to Renew Economy's weekly podcast, an update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economy's editor, Charles Parkinson, and leading energy market analyst, David Leach. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the founder and editor of Renew Economy, and each week I will be joined by David Leach. Uh, welcome, David. Hi, Giles. It's a pleasure to be doing this podcast. And uh, uh, what's been happening this week that's of interest to you? Well, there's been an awful lot happening. It's been a huge week. Um, we've had the um, double the backflip, or perhaps the double backflip, on the uh, carbon pricing agreement. We've had the CSIRO report. We're going to have the Finkel review tomorrow, and there's been lots of other little things in between. But let's start off with the carbon price debate. Um, We had the coalition tentatively opening the door to perhaps an emissions intensity scheme on Monday, shutting the door firmly on Tuesday. What have you made of it, David? Well, I think the background of this is that uh, Australia has signed up for the two COP21 uh, agreement, which at a minimum uh, commits us to cutting our carbon emissions by 25 to 28 per cent by 2030. Uh, so far, in the, between 2005 and 2015, and 2005 is the baseline year, we haven't cut them at all. Uh, so the question is, uh, we're, looking, we're all looking to this review to see how Australia is going to achieve its commitments. And with the uh, government uh, now having ruled out uh, a baseline credit scheme, which still wouldn't have been enough, uh, there'll be a lot of people scratching their heads as to exactly how, what policies the government can come up with uh, to, to, to achieve the scheme. Yeah, I think there's a lot of frustration around um, about it, and um, and you echoed that in uh, your story today. And one of the things you pointed out in your story was that this is a government arguing that it um, is acting because it wants to lower prices, but its um, policies seem to be having the opposite effect. Well, the trouble is there are a, whole, a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is that policy uncertainty raises the cost of capital. I mean, part of the cost of capital is a risk premium. That's the most basic difference between risk-free debt and uh, and risky debt and the cost of equity. And policy uncertainty just raises the risk premium all over the place. Uh, but then there's the other part of it, that the, the, the there is no policy. <laughs> Quite frankly, there is no policy for electricity. And how are we ever going to get any progress in with that background and I guess nature abhors a vacuum and so we've seen the states step in and I guess the immediate uh, just to carry on for a second the immediate pretext uh, or context here is that uh, coal-fired power stations are closing uh, we've seen the closure of the northern power station the forthcoming closure of the Hazelwood power station uh, we've we've seen the Wallerawang power station close in New South Wales We've seen some gas-fired power stations reducing their output because they've sold the gas. And because of the policy uncertainty, there's no electricity, new electricity supply to replace that. And that's pushing up prices. We're seeing higher wholesale prices, higher renewable certificate prices, higher gas prices, and that all feeds through to business prices. I mean, we have BHP complaining. They're complaining because of a blackout but basically they're also complaining because they have to pay more for their electricity. Yes, and I guess that that policy has hit renewables as well because we are supposed to be making a uh, 33,000 gigawatts 
um, renewable energy target by 2020, but really not much has been built up till now. In fact, about the only thing we've actually seen is from the ACT government, which actually is additional to the RET. And we're only starting to see now some new um, wind and solar plants being built. Um, these initial ones have essentially been driven by the arena tender and by some government um, contracts. Although we did actually get a, um, a private contract from Energy Australia um, announced today. So that's one small step forward, but um, probably not enough to, um, to, to meet what we need to get to. Well, it clearly isn't going to be enough. Um, and it, at the moment, it looks like it's going to be quite difficult to achieve the RET target. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the emerging evidence quite clearly points to the view that reverse auctions um, provide more certainty to the people supplying the renewable generation. And this, this is the really key point about these reverse auctions that are backed by a state government or some other credible organisation. They're bankable. If you've got a 15 or 20 year contract uh, with the Victorian or Queensland government, then, then the banks are going to be happy to lend to you. They know that you're going to get your revenue, that you've got costs that you can easily manage, and, and, and they'll be really keen to lend, and that will reduce the, the price that you will have to need to, to get this up and running by 15 to 20%. And, you know, we, we, we'd get a groundswell of these projects going, so we'd start moving down the learning curve again. Every time you double yeah. the output, you move the cost down by 15%. We've got a heck, of, you know, Australia is one of the highest cost countries in the world for building renewable energy, despite the fantastic solar and wind resource. What are we doing wrong? Well, we haven't got we haven't got solid policy, and I think that was another issue that came out of the other story that we want to touch on, which is the CSIRO report. Now, this is a report done by CSIRO and the Energy Networks Australia. We were the, basically the lobby groups for the people that own the grid. Um, distribution and transmission networks around Australia. And for the last two years, they've done this future grid report and they've been coming up with all sorts of different scenarios. Now, the interesting thing about the report they did this week is that they kind of chose what they would see as the preferred scenario and what policy measures would need to be implemented. And what I found really interesting was that they're basically saying that a grid, which is powered largely, almost exclusively by wind and solar, is not only achievable by 2050, but it's probably desirable because it's going to be the cheapest option that we have. And of course, there's going to be battery storage, which is going to be built. But the other interesting thing is that 50%, up to 50% of the generation supply will actually come from households and businesses with rooftop solar and battery storage. And they said that this is going to provide um, the most secure, the most reliable, and the most cost-effective means. In fact, the prices would be around about 25% underneath business as usual, which is continuing with the centralised generation. Now, I was a bit surprised that that didn't get much play in the media. Um, um, what did you make of it, David? Did you um, get anything out of that leap out of here? Uh, well, I actually found the study a little bit hard to read, just in, in the way of the... It was presented, uh, I guess, the, 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 the typing was a bit small for these increasingly aging eyes and there seemed to be a lot of points on every page. But, but leaving that aside, I mean... There were some nice big graphics. <laughs> <laughs> there, there sure were. And leaving that aside, I mean, I guess the point is that this is the CSIRO study done with the energy networks envisages a big role for the networks, of course, and it wants to have the storage distributed around the grid 
and it wants the networks to be involved in it because this is one of the other underlying debates that we can't get to in, until we get some national policy frameworks in place is to who is actually going to own and control all of this distributed energy. Um, but overall, the study that the CSIRO uh, has done is only one of a number of studies. There's some by the University of New South Wales, there's some by the University of Newcastle, there's the Beyond Zero um, studies that all show uh, a, gr a grid with a large percentage of renewables, 80 to 100%, is entirely uh, possible mm. and won't change prices very much. I mean, there's plenty of academic evidence out there. And what was interesting about this study too is it actually revealed the, um, well, I suppose panic is a bit too much of a word, but the networks are very worried that the cost of the batteries and the solar are falling so fast that within a couple of years, people are going to say, well, um, bugger this, um, the grid is too expensive, we're going to use these technologies and we're going to leave the grid, which is not the best social outcome. It's kind of why they're looking for a policy which actually sort of creates some sort of policy guidance around the grid and encourages these people to stay on the grid to lower network costs, deal the network into the equation and not have this ad hoc sort of, you know, quitting or departing from the grid because the best way, obviously, is for people to use solar and battery storage but also to share energy and trade energy, whether it be amongst the communities or, or whatever. But um, clearly there's a bit of a race, race against time on this one. Well, there is, and I think we need to get over uh, some of the uh, difficulties um, people see with the, with ring fencing. Uh, the networks and generation uh, have to be seen as as part of a whole here. And uh, you you will have listened to the podcast we we did with uh, CES and Alivo Analytics that that did a lot of modelling to show how integrating the storage into the grid uh, is is an important thing. And I think everyone yeah. in their heart of hearts knows that there's a role for the grid, a big role for the grid. It's just a way of making the bits fit together. Well, Giles, that's that report, and that's the carbon price uh, backflip. Um, uh, what, what else have you got? Well, there's the Finkel Review tomorrow, um, which is going to be interesting. I think we've got a bit of a taste about that. I think it's going to be more of the same, basically, um, he's calling for some sort of energy policy certainty and consistency. I think he's going to be pointing out that basically the flip-flopping that we've had over the last few years has resulted, as you said earlier in, the, in this podcast, in not much investment. And I think that's a constant theme. Um, look, one of the big things, I'd like to throw it back to you, actually, because one of the things that we've got um, big focus on in the media is about um, prices. What, what can you tell us about the prices this week and um, any interesting trends and, and, and what does it tell us? Well, uh, I guess one of the things this week was that there's been a closure of one of the Portland Smelter uh, pot lines, which will take uh, about three months to get back according to other media reports. And uh, that's resulted in um, uh, about 300 megawatts less demand in Victoria, despite that prices in the pool have actually gone up. Uh, gas prices are trading at double this year. Uh, and uh, pool prices are pretty much up uh, very significantly on last year. Futures prices are up a long way. So all the trends, as we say, uh, are for higher costs uh, for business and consumers. I guess uh, I, we didn't quite cover off on the other parts of the Frydenberg to report. Uh, to be fair, everyone's focused on the political story, which is important about the baseline intensity scheme or, uh, and, and whether we'll get one of those or not. But you have to remember that carbon emissions in Australia, only 38% of them actually come from electricity. 
what about a few policies to deal with the other 62%? I mean, what are we going to do for electric vehicles or any kind of vehicle emission standards in this country? We, we don't have any. What are we going to do about agriculture? What are we going to do about all the businesses that, that bash metal and those kinds of things to keep their c carbon emissions down? I mean, 28% reduction. Uh, you know, we need a few more policies than just emissions intensity, although that certainly helps. Yeah. Well, with electric vehicles, we've just had a few sort of ad hoc policies. Um, there's an initiative been announced by the ACT government this week. Um, they're aiming for 100% sort of renewable energy transport by, or zero emissions transport by 2050. Um, there's been a few initiatives here and there in, um, in South Australia and other places, but really only trial basis only. And it doesn't seem to be the same sort of thing that you get in the United States where you actually get decent rebates. Um, on electric vehicle purchases, or you get significant discounts on things like um, registration and parking and freeway use. And in fact, there was even a report rolled out last week which suggested that um, maybe they'd have to look at how to tax electric vehicles more because they're going to be um, they're going to because they don't use any fuel. They're going to avoid the uh, petrol tax, the petrol type tax, the petrol excise, which um, helps fund the roads. So. You would have thought that to actually encourage electric vehicles, um, we should be um, putting in a few more initiatives right now. We should have a ZEV policy like California and nine other states, which covers 28% of the United States population has. I see Ontario just adopted a very similar policy. That's 22% of Canada. Um, uh, and and then, you know, um, battery storage or some, let's some of the other ideas we could float around. Battery storage, we've got no incentive for that at all, even though everyone thinks it's a great idea pretty much or a coming idea. So why, you know, can battery storage get a renewable energy credit? Well, it probably can't. Can it get an SREC? Well, it probably can't. But, you know, it, it clearly is fulfilling a very useful role in the grid. So that's something else to be done. And, you know, we get to state governments, Giles, you know, they, they are really the gatekeepers now. And I guess in a way that's traditional. State governments used to own the electricity system. And with the federal government seemingly abdicating any responsibility for doing anything, it's going to be up to the state governments to, to provide some leadership in Australia. What do you think the prospects are there? Um, well, we've seen, um, I think they're very keen to do that, actually, um, particularly in the Labor states. We've seen the ACT going to 100% renewable energy, and uh, they've locked that in. Um, South Australia, um, uh, Victoria and Queensland, even the Northern Territory are quite keen. Um, of course, the coalition government is fighting against that and saying that they shouldn't be moving, but I think we've seen in Canada and we've seen in the United States that um, those sub-national governments play a critical role and the same is true of local councils and local communities. I think the ambition has got to come from there. And then even lower down, I think it's actually got to come from households and businesses. And one of the other statistics I'd like to um, point out before we do wrap up for this week is there's been a big surge in purchases of um, rooftop solar panels in, the, in Australia in the last um, month. In fact, we haven't got the data out yet, but the indications are that um, it may have doubled in November. And that's going hand-in-hand hand with a lot of interest in battery storage. We had the uh, German battery maker um, this week telling us about um, they doubled their best ever month in Australia. And they're at the premium end of the market. And, um, and that's a very interesting development in some of the other, some of the other um, manufacturers, such as, um, such as Enphase and LG and Tesla, also reporting um, solid demand. 
Yeah, um, so, the, so the prices are down a long way for those household batteries already. And I think it's pretty obvious that, as usual, te- Tesla, with its Tesla Powerwall 2, has really uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons. And uh, with about 25 suppliers out there, it is going to be competitive. That's what we hoped for and that's what we wanted. Uh, but what you don't see in the news so much is also in the remote power sector. We've seen uh, people like uh, Carnegie Wave Energy, which uh, recently took over uh, a solar, wind and uh, battery supplier for these remote energy projects with some, a little bit of diesel generation. They've got three or four of those up, including the CSIRO uh, radio telescope in uh, West Australia. Uh, we're seeing proposals for big batteries coming into South Australia. I personally think it's far, it's, that really deserves some serious consideration. It's much faster much, much faster than uh, putting in a new transmission line or building a, a new gas-fired uh, power station. Let's put mm-hmm. a bit of storage into South Australia, and, and I hope that that can happen. So what have we next week, I think, uh, what, what have we got coming up there? I think the big one's going to be the AEMO report. The Australian Energy Market Operator is going to put its view or more details about what happened with the South Australian blackout. Now, of course, we do remember that um, there was this massive storm which brought down three transmission lines, um, big changes in frequency and voltage, and eventually the disc inter- interconnector went down and the lights went out. That was used as an opportunity by the coalition government to blame wind energy and renewables policies and to bash the states. They were joined in by the media. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. Today, we actually had a report from RES and Lloyd's Register, which suggested that maybe the gas-fired generators actually had a role to that because... The problem with synchronous generation, when it gets troubled by all these different faults and swinging voltages, they kind of react a bit like your car if you're driving down the street and you put your foot in the accelerator on the uh, on the clutch and all of a sudden the revs go up steaming high. And um, it seems that um, their role in the blackout, um, they might have contributed to um, some of the problems that led to the uh, to the blackout. And these people are actually proposing a 100 megawatt battery storage plant next year, pointing out, as you've just done, that it's probably a lot cheaper and a lot quicker than building a, a billion dollar or multi billion dollar interconnector. Then we've got the um, Finkel report. Do you, do you expect it'll make any difference? Look, you can only hope so. Um, I think um, what we've seen this week is that um, the policy environment is very toxic. Um, you would hope that having a report from the CSIRO, from the network owners, from the owners of the generators, from the owner of the retailers, from the renewable energy industry, from the chief scientists, all pleading, pleading for some sense to come to this debate, that that would have some impact. But um, I guess we'll report back next week and see how we've gone. Okay, thanks, David. Thank you very much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And um, we'll do this again next week. So um, thanks once again. Goodbye. Bye.